The Old Testament passage for today is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, which can be found on page 680 in your pew Bibles. This is what Isaiah, some of them saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and most settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. It's on page 1138 in your pew Bible. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and, and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. I invite you to, uh, to pray with me as we uh, dive deeper together into Isaiah chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, uh, what a vision you give us in uh, these five verses in Isaiah, a vision of all people streaming to your holy mountain. 
welcoming, inviting one another into a deeper life in you. Come. Lord, uh, help us to see this world as you see it. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, you in our midst. Help us to see your kingdom, uh, which is breaking in, which is here even now. So guide us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I found myself, uh, had the chance uh, this week to sit down with a friend and have a beer and uh, somehow our kids were distracted enough where we actually had a good conversation, which we're kind of in that phase of life where that, that feels more rare these days than not. Uh, and this friend asked me uh, a question that I was kind of surprised by. Uh, how rarely I actually get asked this and get a chance to actually answer it. Uh, he just asked me, um, so Tony, how, how are you doing? He said, are you doing okay? And uh, I find myself, uh, you know, processing aloud and talking about how I think turning 40 this year has actually hit me harder than I expected it to and how, uh, in a lot of ways, my life is full of all these really wonderful things. A great job that is meaningful and that I get to serve alongside wonderful people and things are more or less going well. Uh, wonderful wife and kids and home. And, and yet I found myself saying, I, 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 there's something about turning 40 and being at this stage of life that feels like so much of the drive of my life thus far has been this sort of ladder climbing this, it's been driven by this ambition. And I find myself at a, a phase of life where that ambition feels gone, or at least uh, is diminished or, or changing in, in a different way. You know, there's an, going back to being a kid and trying to get ahead, to get in a good high school, to get in a good university, and to get in a grad school and then kind of the, the eyeing each other up in grad school trying to set ourselves apart and then getting a job and then you know uh becoming this pastor of a little church and getting married and having kids and then it felt like this you know big step to come here about four years ago and now i find myself at this place where it's like my life is uh you know i, I don't have ambitions to professionally move up to being a, a mega church pastor or anything like that, right? It's, it's kind of like, I, how could it be better than Sherman Street Church, right? Uh, I mean, I, I really, and so I, uh, we have a comfortable house in East Town, and we, you know, our kids are eight and seven and seven, and, I, and it's like, I look at the next 10 years of my life, what my 40s are likely to be, and it's, it's no more of this, you know, these big, exciting steps towards this new, bigger, and better. 
feels like we're, we're in this stretch now. And there's something about that that feels like a death happening in me. And I don't, I don't know if that's depression or growth, the pruning work of God, or maybe both. Maybe it's God working through, but, but there's, I'm realizing how much of my drive, even as a pastor, has been driven by ego. And I'm sure my, my ego is very much alive and, and well. Uh, I see that in lots of other ways, but, but there's this death, this, this loss that's happening in me. I read this uh, quote recently, Thomas Merton talks about uh, one who has these expectations of themselves, of doing spectacular things, growing by coming to terms with their own mediocrity. The growth of coming to accept our mediocrity. And when I read that line, it was like a punch in the gut of like, oh, my, my fear is being mediocre. And Merton says that the way to really discover who we are is through acceptance of, he says, our insignificance and our mediocrity. He, he goes on to talk about this uh, this is uh, in a chapter in his book, uh, New Seeds of Contemplation. He writes this. He says, people imagine that they can only find themselves by asserting their own desires and ambitions and appetites in a struggle with the rest of the world. They try to become real by imposing themselves on other people, by appropriating for themselves some share of the limited supply of created goods, and thus emphasizing the difference between themselves and the others who have less than they or nothing at all. He says they can only conceive one way of becoming real, by cutting themselves off from other people and building a barrier of contrast and distinction between themselves and others. And thus he says, I spend my life admiring the distance between you and me. Again, I don't know about you, but it, it's like I read that and it's like punch in the gut of, oh, how much am I even, how much of my uh, becoming a pastor, being a pastor, being a, my desire to be a good Christian is driven by ego driven by this desire to create this distance between others and myself, that I may live a life admiring that distance. And of course, it's, it's woven. Oh, he, one last uh, quote. He says, who can escape the secret desire to breathe a di different atmosphere than the rest of us? Uh, 
And this is, this is written into, our, again, our spiritual pride. Uh, it can be such a discouraging thing going to like a pastor's luncheon because we as pastors do this, this posturing and this, uh, and I do it. Uh, I have a confession to make. Some of you who are already falling asleep, perking up, oh, confession. <laughs> um, that sometimes uh, when we have a guest preacher here, and we bring someone in, none of our in-house preachers, of course, but uh, when, when we have a guest preacher that we don't know that comes in, and, uh, and Jenna and I are Sarah on vacation, we come back and we'll ask, you know, how did it go? Sometimes the response is, well, they're okay. Uh, not as good as having you and Jen here. And there's this sick satisfaction that I sometimes get in that, right? And when, and when I'm preaching, you know, I'm, I'm praying all week, God, please let your word go out to the people. Please build them up. And shouldn't I bring that into my prayers for guest preachers? And, and to be sure, it's a mix, right? There is that when, when we hear, oh, it was, it was beautiful. Like, guest preacher brought it and people were crying and it felt like there's healing. There's, there's a satisfaction in that too, but this spiritual pride, this ego is written into so much of our understanding of how we relate to one another. And of course that's true, right? Because it's, it's the dominant ideology of our culture. As a people who live in a, a country shaped by capitalism and consumerism and all that, the, the ideology that goes with it, right? All the, the worldview, the, the teachings, the assumptions about what it means to be human, about what the good life is, about what it means to flourish. We are being formed, shaped every day, all day, by this understanding, what Merton calls the great lie, that we find ourselves over against one another. All these Black Friday ads about, you know, get these things that will set you apart from your friends, buy the, the perfect gift that makes everyone on Christmas morning go, wow, he or she, they really nailed it this time, right? It's all about setting ourselves, even, you know, uh, many of us are really in the sports right now as the, the World Cup is happening, and uh, I know there's some Michigan fans in the room uh, celebrating the, the demise of Ohio State yesterday, uh, and it's all this, this this climbing over one another to be on top. And then we turn to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 2. And we get an opposite vision for the purpose and the fulfillment of all God's hopes for humanity. Notice the contrast here again, right? If, if our culture is all about this vision of a dog-eat-dog world, survival of the fittest, stepping on one another to get above each other, here's the vision that Isaiah gives for us. Just the, this vision as the first Sunday, our text of the first Sunday of Advent. It talks about this mountain of the Lord in the last days. And says, all nations will stream to it. All nations. 
Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up together to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. It's a vision of many peoples, of distinct nations, inviting each other further up and further in into the mountain of God. As God's word goes out, God's instruction for how to live together in the way of love and peace and justice. They encourage each other, the nation, so that we may walk in his paths. He goes on, the law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. And God will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Isn't that an interesting understanding of the the judgment of God? In the last days, God will judge, and it says he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. The judgment of God, the just judge, as the settling of disputes. All our battles, all our, our wars with one another. And it's this vision The people will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, right? Weapons are transformed into gardening tools. Objects meant to destroy and tear each other down become the tools for cultivating a shared life together. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor Will they train for war anymore? It's this radical new way of the nations interacting with each other, not through violence and competition in a world of of scarce resources, but of encouraging each other further up and further in into the life of God. Notice the vision of of Israel's destiny is not Israel wins and everyone else loses, but it's all the nations win. All the nations come together. Merton again, uh, talks about uh, the cross and the empty tomb of Christ is not a we win and everyone else loses. It's about uh, the, the mercy of God for the sake of the whole world. And the reason that uh, individualism will never satisfy us is because it's rooted in a lie. A lie that says, that I become more real when I set myself apart from you. Rather, Merton says, our personhood, our becoming who we are, our becoming more real, happens through a dying to ourselves, a dying to this, this ego as we move beyond its limits, 
into a life of love and relationship. Personhood then is living into one's unique capacity for love. This language of, of dying to ourselves, I, I've found, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church and church cultures that uh, would often talk about the dying to ourselves in a way that uh, played down my unique personhood, right? If someone were to come up to you and say, hey, you did a really wonderful job singing this morning. You have a beautiful voice. That the humble response of humility we were told looked like was to say, oh, that wasn't me, that was God, you know? Or just, oh, no, no, no. I'm okay, but God is the one who is wonderful. But really, dying to self, as Merton understands it, is about coming to live the life of love such that one's unique personality and uh, the ways that God has gifted you, the talents and passion, emerge in that life of love and relationship. That it's in dying to ourselves that we, we become alive, right? Jesus put that pretty clearly when he said, you have to, to die to self to become alive. Not in a way that eradicates our individuality, but a way that, that releases us full it, uh, fully for it. One of the things uh, that struck me about looking at Isaiah 2 in this vision of the mountain of God is how uh, these many peoples, that the, these nations come together and enjoy this peace between nations. But uh, I've never noticed this before, but they still exist as independent nations. Isn't that interesting? That it doesn't say that all nations will become Israel and their own cultures and histories and identities will be eradicated. But it's, it's a vision, uh, one commentator talks about it, it's, it's like a, a vision of a United Nations that, that actually is effective and works and mediating, right? And, and God, the just judge, settling disputes between nations and nations interacting, living together without war, but they're still, they still have their individual cultures. Even as they all move towards and up the mountain of God as God's word streams to it. It's all, it's all centered in Yahweh as the source of that peace. But, but they maintain their unique personhood as nations. It brought to mind a, a commentary I was reading last Pentecost uh, on Acts chapter 2, you know, the, the usual Pentecost text that we read where the Holy Spirit comes in the upper room and the, the tongues of flames and uh, Acts 2 talks about how all these people, these crowds from all over the world are outside, and they hear the words in their own tongues. And again, I've never noticed this before, but this is a commentary by Usto Gonzalez. This is one of the reasons it's important to read uh, scripture commentators and readers who are people of color who, who read from the margins. Because I'd never picked this up in, in uh, the, the commentaries I had read from white authors. But Uso Gonzalez says, notice that 
It's not that as the word of God goes out from the upper room on Pentecost, that they all hear one universal language. Notice he says that they all hear the truth in their own tongues. And he underscores again that the kingdom of God, the work, this vision of the last days, this end, this telos, this goal that we live into, again, is not the eradication of personhood or of cultures, but their release from pride and greed and violence and hatred, which bind us from being who we really are. And why is this the case? Why is it the case that God's vision of the flourishing of many peoples of all nations living together in peace is the one that we set our minds and hearts and our lives towards? Well, of course, it's because this is who God is. Eugene Peterson uh, in the message of, uh, in his paraphrase of Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, he says this, they'll say, come, let's climb God's mountain. Go to the house of the God of Jacob. And then this, he'll show us the way he works so that we can live the way we are made. Come, let us Go up the mountain. He'll show us the way he works so that we can live the way we are made. Friends, uh, this is the, the heart of God. That our God, who made us in love and sustains us in love, who in a sense is the father of, of all people and all creation. God's heart is not that we be at war with one another. Not that we live lives dictated by this ideology of the survival of the fittest. But that we would all be swept up into the life of God. Into the life of love. For it is this life for which we were made. One last uh, Thomas Merton quote for you. He says, in, he's talking about the Trinity, the nature of God. In the Father, the infinite love of God is always beginning. And in the Son, it is always full. And in the Holy Spirit, it is perfect and it is renewed. and never ceases to rest in its everlasting source. But if you follow love forward and backward from person to person within the Trinity, you can never track it to a stop. You can never corner it and hold it down and fix it to one of the persons. As if he could appropriate to himself the fruit of the love of the others. For the one love of the three persons is an infinitely rich giving of itself, which never ends and is never taken, but is always perfectly given, only received in order to be perfectly shared. 
This is the, the God of Advent. This is the God of the mountain of the Lord and this incredible vision in Isaiah 2. And if, uh, if you, like me, hear all this and are just struck by the, the gap between where we are and what we are living into, between the, the, the ego that still persists in our own hearts and the heart that God invites each of us into. I want to encourage you by, by reminding you that Advent uh, is a very appropriate place uh, to come with emptiness. Perhaps on this uh, journey of these four Sundays, as we await the coming of the King, a good place to begin is with confession, with an emptiness in recognizing uh, how far yet we have to go. I don't want to pray this, this, this written prayer. Uh, Again, I want to invite you to embrace the reminders of your life, uh, the, all the struggles that remind you of your mediocrity. Instead of despising these things, instead of seeing them as the things that hold you back from excellence, perhaps frame them today and this week as, as full of gift and the humbling reminder of your mediocrity that you are not different from the rest of us, that you are with us, that we are in this struggle together. Let's pray. Lord, give me humility in which alone is rest. And deliver me from pride which is the heaviest of burdens. And possess my whole heart and soul with the simplicity of love. And occupy my whole life with the one thought and the one desire of love, that I may love not for the sake of merit, not for the sake of perfection, not for the sake of virtue, not even for the sake of sanctity, but for you alone, Lord Jesus. For there is only one thing that can satisfy love and reward it, and that is you alone. So Lord, Jesus, coming King, help us to rest in the silent expectancy of the coming of God. In God's name, all people prayed. Amen.